we are pushing for democratic reforms, we are pushing for our liberties, we are pushing for our freedoms to be guaranteed. That's because uh, we start to identify ourselves with the city, we want to change it for better. I'm Sam Johannes, and I will be your host on today's episode of Global, which is the second in a series we're calling The Bright Spots of Democracy, where we take a look at folks from around the globe whose stories contradict the often repeated narrative that democracy is in decline. For this episode, we had conversations with four student activists from Hong Kong, who we caught up with while they were in Berlin for the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. As you're probably aware, in Hong Kong this year, there's been ongoing protests since June, which were sparked in large part by the introduction of an amendment to legislation on extradition that would have undercut Hong Kong's independence from mainland China. Uh, But the, the protests are occurring against the backdrop of Hong Kong's longer struggle for self-determination in the face of external pressure, and in this case, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, the conversations we had with our guests put a human face, uh, or, or voice in this case, to some of those themes. Um, we looked at how the protests developed, uh, the protesters' demands, some of their personal experiences and motivations uh, with these events, and their general outlook on Hong Kong's democratic future, um, especially as it relates to the pressure from the Chinese Communist Party. So without further ado, our guests will introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Wan Danian Anson. You can call me Danian. I'm Kelly Hong from Hong Kong. My name is Edie. You can call me uh, Yeah, Zilam is my full name. I'm a stu- year two student from the University of Hong Kong. I'm Joey Siu, and I'm the spokesperson of the Hong Kong Higher Institutions International First Delegation. And I'm also the fa- external vice president of the City University of Hong Kong Students Union. Great. So to start us off, could you give us some background on Hong Kong itself? Uh, the relationship with China, um, the the issues of self-determination that arise from those, and uh, sort of how that has all led to to the protests that we're seeing now. Officially, the relationship between uh, China and Hong Kong is a national government and a city uh, kind of relationship, but uh, it's a special kind of city. So it's special administrative region of China. Uh, it's came from a uh, British colony before 1997 and became a special city of, Ch- uh, of China. So basically China takes over all the foreign affairs and defense affairs of Hong Kong, uh, but they're supposed to only take over those affairs. Uh, other affairs should be auton- uh, autonomous uh, in Hong Kong. In 1997, it was returned back to the Chinese government. And ever since then, we are running under a system called the One Country, Two System, which actually means that even when we're ruled by Chinese, we don't have to apply the exactly same political systems and like financial policies in Hong Kong. And that makes Hong Kong a very special territory. And to be very honest, we Hong Kongers often feel like we're living in another country that is different from China. But then we can see that Ever since the hangover of Hong Kong from the British to the Chinese, we can see a very serious encroachment by the Chinese government. 
especially for the recent years, ever since 2016, when the Chinese government is trying to unseat our Legislative Council members, they're disqualifying them from running for elections. Our relationship with the Chinese government is getting even worse, that we feel that they're trying to suppress our democratic like elections and our any kinds of like democracy developments in Hong Kong very hardly. Uh, so what sparked the whole protest? The whole protest sparked when the Chinese government tried to pressure the Hong Kong government to uh, enact an extradition bill. The extradition bill uh, and allows all every single person in Hong Kong, including tourists, foreigners, uh, Hong Kongers, everyone to be extradited to other places, including like Taiwan, mainland uh, China, for example, uh, uh, and other places. Uh, but Obviously, that uh, there is a huge concern on the legal system and the rule of law, and uh, whether you get free, free uh, sorry, whether you get a fair treatment, due process in mainland China. So it sparked uh, uh, a, a huge, a huge range of protests uh, because concerns for personal safety and the distrust of the Chinese government in general. Sure, obviously the the protests have centered on this. Uh extradition legislation, but maybe we could talk a little bit about the the five demands that the protesters have articulated, which extend to things that aren't just the, the extradition bill, uh, and sort of how the, the protest has developed. Um, so there are five demands by the protesters. Uh, so the first one was not calling the protests riots. That was uh, in June when they were all peaceful uh, protests. Second one was uh, the setup of an independent uh, inquiry, was chaired by a judge uh, into police brutality. Third one was, sorry, to withdraw the extradition bill. So the whole thing uh, that started. Fourth one was to release of all uh, arrested protesters, actually. And the fifth one was for demand for true democracy for uh, universal suffrage, which we don't have in Hong Kong. So um, as it progresses, uh, the as because for example uh, for the first uh, protest was in the 9th of june so there was like 1 million people ran, went to the streets and at night the uh, carrie lam is the chief executive of hong kong so carrie lam announced that uh, we heard your voices but we will still push for the bill regardless of what you've done so um the bill was supposed to go through a legislature called lechco or legislative council uh, on 12 so on 12 uh, a lot of People went out again, this time uh, over over a million, I think, uh, tipping two to a million, uh, at the Legislative Council complex. So uh, because the peaceful protests uh, didn't work, so uh, they tried to more uh, to be more physical. So that was still in June, but, uh, uh, but when I say physical, it's more like um, trying to get into the complex, sort of stuff and it's still uh, relatively still very peaceful when we talk uh, when we compare it to now um on june is actually it's the summer vacation for students so there are a lot of participants and people are are very devoted but after the semester uh, started so we see that people are having parallel worlds. They're living in parallel worlds. For weekdays, they will go to study, they will go to work. And on Sunday, on weekends, they will have to go out and protest. And I see that it's actually quite exhausting for Hong Kongers because to keep a balance of lives. But we see that the heat wasn't, is not over yet. 
yeah, the people is still very angry and still wishing for human rights, democracy, because we think that this is the last chance for us. As the uh, protests progresses, so um, more and more people come out and the government's response was uh, to ask the police to uh, violently suppress the, the, the protests, for example, using tear gas, batons, um, and rubber bullets, um, using real bullets now. For Berlin Wall, it's like they're, they're trying to keep us in place, just using violent. So they want us to be quiet and obedient to them, to the government, so that they can do whatever they want. Before, in 2014, when we heard about tear gas, we were actually very frightened and scared. But for now, I see that in the movement. The, the police is not using tear gas anymore. They're using rubber bullets, they're using uh, beanbags and, and feedback bullets, and they even fight real guns. So, the people actually are so forgetting. They, they, they don't really... They were so afraid of tear gas, but now even they fight real guns, they feel like, oh, it's okay, just escalating. They, yeah, they reacted so fast. Maybe you could speak to the role that young people, uh, particularly students, have played in this protest. Uh, for a historical background, so uh, Students' Union has been in the forefront in the umbrella movements. These organizations, including student unions, they have been leading and organizing the whole umbrella movement back in 2014. Uh, so uh, organization-wise, here uh, now we have a leaderless movement. No, no organization is in front of organizing the whole thing. Uh, people are coming out themselves. So what students or student unions or organizations are doing, we try to support them by providing like first aid. The support we do is like fringe supports for those who are affected by the protests. Um, so uh, gen generically or generally students, uh, we can see that more than a third arrested are students. Uh, because, uh, well, I can't say the exact role students are playing because we're uh, most protesters, they cover their faces, cover their identity very well. They don't want other people to know who they are, understandably, because if we know who they are, police will know who they are. So uh, we don't know who's actually in the forefront, but uh, from the numbers of arrest, we know that our students have played a huge role in the actual protests, but uh, that we only know that after they were like arrested or their identity were exposed. Hundreds of uh, arrested persons are students. And students is like the initiator at the beginning of the protest. Like um, they initiate some class boycott uh, at the beginning of the semester. Even the secondary school student, they join the boycott. And they are kind of like, they are like the model to the middle age or the adults that when student is coming out to the street to fight for this uh, future. Like there is a, a phenomenon in Hong Kong that the elderly come out to the street to protect students. So the elderly is really like they are 70 and 80 years old. They wear masks, they wear goggles, and they come out to the streets that this is our next generation, so we have to protect them. So the student is like a glue to unify the whole society to come out to fight for, to like um, fighting against the totalitarian regime. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what this movement, uh, this struggle for, for democratic ideals has meant to you personally. Is it something that sort of just gradually took up more and more space in your life? Did it happen all of a sudden? Was there a sort of a watershed moment? 
um, talk about that. The moment when I realized that I would be devoting myself into the fight for democracy would be 2014. There was actually the umbrella revolution in Hong Kong, and I believe that is also the awakening point for many of the teenagers or even the adults in Hong Kong that we realize that the government is actually not responsive. They are not the leaders that we can choose, that we do not have the right to vote for our own leaders, and that's why the government has been so irresponsible to the people of Hong Kong. And ever since then, I was like paying attention and being interested in politics, in social issues. And for this time, for the anti-extradition bill movement, it was actually because like back in June, my student unions was actually remained vacant because like nobody was running for the election. And by that time, I felt like I can actually do more as a student leader. And that's why I was... I nominated myself and I get elected by the councillors of my student union and then I became a student leader because I felt like with the role as a student leader I would be able to do more to try to lead something for example like providing support to the student I can try to organize them in a better way. Uh, before the two million people come out to protest there's a one person who who commits suicide because because of that in like um, 15th of June, the man who stand on the building in the shopping mall and telling Hong Kong people don't surrender to carry them and hope carry them to withdraw the bills. And then at night, he just suddenly jumped from the building. So he's the first one who died because of political movement in Hong Kong. So, um, um, so many people will think that this regime really kills a man. I think uh, during June, I just saw that the police are actually brutally towards the citizens. It's like they they are not treating us as human. Like they they are now call, calling us cockroaches. If you if you have heard, yeah, they're just yelling that oh cockroaches, you you just don't come out, then I don't have to beat you. That's the, how the police is thinking now, and I just think that it's kind of wrong. It's just very wrong in that sense. So. So when I started to like fight for democracy, I think back in 2014, I was kind of being inspired, saying that we have our freedom, we have our democracy, we should have that. That's our right. But in Hong Kong, the, the situation has actually deteriorated. For now, it's like when I go out to the street, I have to be careful where the police is, and they, they may stop and search me for no reason. And they can arrest me because I, I yelled, Oh, liberty Hong Kong, liberate Hong Kong, something like that. So I think that it's very wrong in that sense. And so I think that something must be changed in Hong Kong. So let's switch gears a little bit. We are speaking to you all in Berlin on the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it seems uh, appropriate to ask you all about your impressions of, of those historical events and perhaps uh, whether or not you see modern-day versions of the Berlin Wall, you know, barriers that, uh, physical or otherwise, that separate people with democratic aspirations. Whether or not you've seen modern-day versions of that in your own experiences. I think the fall of the Berlin Wall is uh, symbolizes that uh, although past efforts or past uh, movements towards democracy has uh, often failed, uh, there is a chance, there is an actual example, historical example, that there is a possibility of succeed. So it's like um, 
So 30 years ago, um, the Western country, like the capitalist country, is fighting against with the Soviet Union. So now we, Hong Kong citizens, is also fighting the greatest totalitarian regime in the world, like the Chinese Communist Party. They let you have your freedom as long as it suits them, and they push a invisible, uh, an invisible wall or barrier uh, on the important parts, which is essential to democratic life. For example, uh, free elections to the legislative council, mm -hmm. for the chief executive, for you to change uh, your infrastructure. To have, sorry, uh, the infrastructure of the system. Uh, they put a invisible wall there that they will stop you whenever it doesn't suit them. So that would be the closest, I think. So we've talked a lot about uh, challenges that people in Hong Kong are facing, that democracy is facing. What are some things that that uh, seem like opportunities that, that are make you optimistic about Hong Kong's future? Well, the thing I feel very motivating is about the change of attitude from Hong Kongers, because like as I have mentioned that before the movement starts, like people in Hong Kong are getting very disappointed to politics that they no longer pay attention to social issues in Hong Kong. But then ever since the movement started, people are like from secondary school kids or even primary school kids to elderly that are like 70 years old, 80 years old, all of them are paying attention to what's happening in Hong Kong, but not, not only about the not only about the current pro-democracy movement, but about all the social issues and politics in Hong Kong. And I feel like that is very encouraging. And another thing I feel very motivating is about the consolidation of identity as a Hong Konger. We are acting as a organized body instead of individuals. And I feel like that is very, that is very touching because like, I see that this is actually the time when Hong Kongers are most unified. We are acting as a as a group instead of individuals. Mm, first, I'll start by saying it's pretty uh, pessimistic, actually. Although we had some success, obviously, uh, the actual bill was withdrawn, mm -hmm. but uh, because during the course of the protests, uh, we see police brutality, gross violations of human rights, war crimes, uh, but. There doesn't seem uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a viable end to or viable way to hold them accountable. But of, uh, there are also some very optimistic uh, points. Uh, for example, international support is one of the most uh, encouraging in the U.S. The Human uh, Hong Kong Democracy Act and <clears throat> the related acts, uh, and we can see other countries voicing out support for democracy, voicing out support for. Uh, Hong Kong protesters, that encourages a lot. So um, we are still trying to find the viable end to the protests and to hold those uh, people who violated human rights and wrote our democracy accountable. Uh, but I think uh, international support was one of the most encouraging and most optimistic things that, can, that keeps us to continue trying. And to close us out, if there were one thing that you wanted to leave our listeners with about Hong Kong, one thing that they should remember uh, about the situation there and, and the struggles that you and your peers are going through, what would that be? In this half years, we understand that the 
biggest enemy of Hong Kong people is not our chief executive, it's not our police, because police is just a tool that they carry them to um, suppress us. The biggest enemy to the Hong Kong people is the Chinese government. And we hope that Hong Kong can be an example to tell the Western country that um, the Western country thought they could coexist with the PRC, but it doesn't because the China is trying to be bigger and they will destroy every civilization in the Western country like democracy and any freedom. They will use whatever way to control their citizens to follow their leaders' will. We are pushing for democratic reforms, we are pushing for liberties, we are pushing for freedoms to be guaranteed. That's because uh, we start to identify ourselves with the city, we want to change it for the better, we want uh, our, we want ourselves to be protected, uh, but continue to live in the city that we were grown in. Uh, and that shift in culture from 1997 till um, now in identity, I think, is a very important part of why this whole democratic uh, movement or, de or the first for democracy and true freedom came from is because we love where we live. We want to stay there and we want to see it better. So that does it for us, folks. A huge thank you to Danian, Joey, Edie, and Kelly for taking the time to speak with us and share their perspectives. If you liked what you heard on this episode, please drop us a review on whichever platform you use to listen to podcasts. That really helps us get the word out. Uh, feel free to email us at podcast at iri.org. It's always a pleasure to, to receive those emails from our audience. We do actually take audience feedback into account when planning these things out. So if there are any topics in particular you'd like us to cover, anything you thought we did well or, or could improve on, please do let us know. Uh, but otherwise, thank you for listening to Global. We'll see you next time. <laughs>